It says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. One thing that I always think is fascinating about uh, Paul's letters is that there are two perspectives, two lenses that you can, can read them with, and I think they're both helpful. To illustrate what I, what I mean, imagine uh, someone who's studying to be a high school English teacher. And so he's sitting in the classroom of a master teacher uh, watching, watching her teach. And so as he's sitting there at first, he's, he's enthralled in the lecture and he, he is learning so much about uh, this, one of his favorite novels that he never knew before. Uh, but about halfway through the class, he realizes, wait a minute, I'm not here to just learn about a book or, or be a student. I'm here to learn how to teach. So he shifts his focus to watching how she teaches, watching, watching the craft of teaching, how she involves students in the discussion, how she's prepared. And he learns as much in the second half of the period about how to teach as he did in the first half as a student. And I think uh, reading Paul's letters is, can be kind of the same experience. We can either see Paul's instructions and explanations as, directed straight to us and, and learn so much from that. And we can also shift our focus to watching how Paul is following Christ, how he's leading, how he's communicating, how he's solving problems. So I want to first look at how, look at this from Paul's point of view, and then we'll look at it from the Corinthians' point of view after that. So when Paul is writing this letter, he's, he's not writing it from personal observation. So he's He's writing to the church of Corinth, but he's not in Corinth. He's most likely in Ephesus, uh, which is in modern-day Turkey, about 200 miles away. And so the, the Corinthians are in Greece. So all of this information that he's getting would be coming to him from some kind of trusted friend because he hasn't been there for about, Paul hasn't been there for about three years now. Um, and so during that time, there was another effective teacher who came along named Apollos, and he really connected with a lot of the people. And so with that background, uh, put yourself in Paul's shoes where someone's coming to you and they say, you know, Paul, you might be interested to know you got a lot of fans in Corinth. And he says, well, wh what do you mean? I do? Yeah, they like you so much that, you know, some of them are calling themselves Team Paul. And he says, well, team, why are they calling themselves a team? What, what is that? Well, it's because they're going up against Team Apollos, but don't worry. I think your guys have the upper hand here. You know, it must, must be nice having, having such a devoted group that are ready to go to battle for you, Paul. So what do you think was going through Paul's mind at that point? It would have been really easy to just kind of soak that in and say, hmm, Team Paul, Team Sam, not bad. But Paul shook himself out of, I, I imagine he shook himself out of his daydream and remembered 
uh, his words from Galatians, where he says, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul decided a long time ago that the most important thing to him was bringing the message of God to the Gentiles, seeing it take root in people's lives and seeing them get all the way to maturity. Paul knew that if he was soaking in that power, that he was going to be taking away from God's glory. So he goes on to explain his perspective on ministry and why he shouldn't be the focal point. So he says in verse 5, What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. First, he calls them both servants. In Greek, it's diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. And here it means an intermediary or an agent or even a courier. Then he lowers their role even more. He says, we're servants through whom you believed, but it was the Lord who gave us this work to do. He was the one really in charge. Then verses 6 and 7, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. God's the important one, not us. We shouldn't be the ones that are the team captain. God's the team captain, the coach, and the commissioner all in one. Next, Paul clarifies one more time everyone's correct roles in verses 8 and 9. He says, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So he's saying, Apollos and I are one. We're on the same team, and if one of us did better than the other, that's for God to sort out. You don't, you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to compare us. Then in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. He's saying, not only are Paul and Apollos on the same team, they're on God's team. They're God's co-workers. He's saying, we're working with God, and we're working on you. He's kind of taking it back to the basics, as he said he would, for his audience. Paul refuses to compete with Apollos, despite the church's best efforts to pit them against each other. Paul refuses to drink in that feeling of power and allegiance from those committed to him, because he knows if he takes the glory, he's taking from God's glory. I think even today, it's tempting to grab attention when we have the opportunity, or in Paul's case, not to redirect the attention uh, given to us by people trying to put us on the wrong pedestal. It's tempting to think if we can keep others lower than us, then, then we will be honored. But in fact, it's usually the people who are helping others be successful that are the most honored. I think when many people uh, are trying to hog the attention, it's because they believe there's, there's not enough of it to go around. But it's a wonderful thing about our Heavenly Father is he never runs out of attention. He never runs out of acceptance and love. We can all be his favorite. Paul understood this and freely gave away the allegiance he was getting in favor of God's greater glory. And it's a great lesson for all of us. I want to shift gears now and look at this passage as the audience. So we looked at what we can learn by standing in Paul's shoes. Now let's join the Corinthians who are reading this letter. So, as I said, they had gotten a lot of teaching from Paul, but that had been a while now. So Paul thought, he was hoping they'd be ready to move on to, to more teaching, uh, but they're not. For one thing, they're divided. Now, unfortunately, they're, they're still worshiping God, but they've broken up into these factions. It's certainly okay to have preferences, but where it got off track is where some folks were saying, I don't care about Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm an Apollopalian. And others said, Apollos isn't so great. I'm with Paul. I'm a Paulbaterian. 
and they couldn't work together at all, and they couldn't get along. Apparently, there was jealousy and quarreling among them. Paul sees all this, and he's really disappointed. He thought they were going to be ready to take their following of Jesus to the next level. But if they're still getting distracted on which leader they started with, then he's going to have to take them back to square one. He wanted to give them some really meaty teaching, but they can only handle baby food. For the Corinthians, it's just going to have to be mashed carrots and applesauce for a while. The key problem here is that the Corinthians are defining themselves the way the world does rather than the way God does. They care more about which person or personality they're associated with than they do about who God says they are. Paul expands on this idea in a later passage in the second letter to the Corinthians. He teaches that he used to think of Jesus by human standards, but then God showed him the truth about Jesus Christ and that we shouldn't shouldn't focus on anyone based on human standards. So here's how he says it. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he, this is Jesus, died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, pay attention especially here. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new has come. I think it's an important but difficult thing uh, to do what Paul's talking about here, to see people as they are from God's perspective rather than by the world's standards. There are so many forces that are trying to push us to see things through the world's categories. Uh, The world's trying to get us to see through the lens of Rich or poor, beautiful or ugly, successful or a loser, similar or strange, smart or stupid. And the world says only the rich, beautiful, smart, successful people who are similar to us are worthy of any attention. This is what Paul means when he talks about recognizing people according to the flesh. So what does it look like today to see someone according to the flesh or according to the world's standards? I think it's easy to fall into doing this when you're dealing with difficult people, a difficult boss, Uh, a difficult customer, a difficult neighbor, maybe a difficult family member, or even uh, a difficult driver that you're having to deal with. It's easy to make a snap judgment with people when you're having a hard time with them. But just as it's it's easy to have too low a view of people, it's also possible to have a a view that's too high of other people. Uh, When I lived in Southern California, there were so many people that were starstruck that they were so focused on their connection to someone supposedly important. Someone would tell me, you know, I'm represented by a talent scout that Howie Mandel once called impressive. So I'm kind of a big deal. (laughs) Or someone else would say, you know, a year ago, I was at an open mic night playing guitar, and Adam Levine from Maroon 5, you know, he's also on The Voice, as he was leaving, he gave me a thumbs up. So... It's almost like I have a record deal. And I have to confess, I, I fell into it myself. I was working for a uh, company that did tax preparation and professional services near downtown LA. And uh, our company got a new relationship with, with an attorney. And this attorney was the general counsel for the consulate of Norway. So basically, when Norway had legal problems, they called this guy. He was also always on TV doing investigations, talking about investigations that he was doing on different things. I don't know who assigned him to do 
any of these investigations, but there were certainly a lot of investigations happening, and they were all ongoing, and they were all on TV. Uh, and so when I was working with him, I was, I was starstruck. I thought, if this guy, in fact, if this guy likes me, you know, this is going to be great for my career. He can introduce me to all the most important people in Norway, whoever, whoever that would be. <laughs> Unfortunately, in the end, when his association with the company ended poorly, uh, he got really nasty to me. He started leaving me uh, threatening or intimidating voicemails on my personal cell phone, uh, trying to threaten me to, to get his way, and basically treated me like I was totally worthless. Uh, I realized how foolish I had been to be in awe of this guy. God doesn't want us to live for our associations, for who we're with. We're not to evaluate people according to who they are in the flesh. So if we're not looking at people according to who they are in the flesh, what does it look like to see them with God's eyes? The Gospels provide us with some wonderful pictures of how Jesus saw the world, and I want to look at one of them. It's in the book of Mark, chapter 6, 30 through 34, and, and I'll read it. And I've got some, some pictures of what these scenes might have looked like. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So they're trying to get away. They've been working hard. They're, they're ready for a rest. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. I love that description that they were like sheep without a shepherd. He looked out of the crowd, maybe that looked like this, and he saw they were just so lost. And he saw them through God's eyes, through his father's eyes, and had compassion on them. And that compassion overpowered his itinerary because he saw them with his father's eyes. So how about us? What would it look like for us to ask God, give me your eyes? Maybe you've got that one family member who's always irritated at everyone and everything and uh, you see them and you just want to say, you know, nobody cares about whatever you're bitter about this time. You know, either keep it to yourself or get over it. But instead, you say, God, give me your eyes. And you realize that she'll only be saved from her bitterness through a savior. You decide to invite her to church. Maybe you're out in public and you hear someone scream, why did you come to this country if you can't speak English? And you want to think, hey, he's got a point. But instead, you ask, God, give me your eyes. And you look over at the man being screamed at, and you see his shirt says, Jesus loves you. And you realize he's actually your brother in Christ. So you decide to go over and break through the language barrier and help him out for a few minutes. Maybe there's someone close to you that can't hold down a steady job and struggles financially nonstop, and you want to say, when are you going to get it together? You're a failure. But instead, you say, God, give me your eyes. And you see that all that rejection means that he needs even more encouragement and needs the strength, acceptance, and love of his heavenly father. And you pray that God will give you the right time to tell him about how beginning a relationship with your heavenly father has been transformative for you. And how about you? What if you could see yourself with God's eyes? 
Maybe you look at the last couple of years and you think, man, everything's unraveled. Where is God? I feel like my whole life is falling apart. You decide to say, God, give me your eyes. And right then you remember the passage that Jesus said about himself in the synagogue in Nazareth. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. And hope returns to you because through God's eyes, nothing is impossible, and Christ was sent to be a savior. Maybe instead you think, God, I'm working really hard to follow you. I'm, I'm serving my family. I'm working hard at work. I'm I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm serving a lot at church, and I feel like all I'm getting back is exhaustion. You decide to say, God, give me your eyes. And you see from his perspective, through his word in Galatians, it says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Or maybe you're here and you're thinking, okay, okay, maybe everyone else needs this religion stuff, but I think I'm all set on my, on my own. You know, maybe I'll hang out with some holy rollers now and then, and they'll, they'll rub off on me a little bit, and I'll get a little holier. And maybe, for some reason, you decide to pray, well, God, give me your eyes. And you understand Jesus' words to Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God, unless your life starts over with Christ, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You realize that following Christ isn't about something rubbing off on you. It's saying, I'm a sinner, and I need a savior, and I'm going to start a new life as a follower of Jesus. And you experience the reality of Paul's words that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, and a new has come. Wherever you are today and however you've been looking at the world, I want to challenge you not to define yourself as, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Pinewood, I'm of Philly, I'm of this family or this neighborhood or this device or brand or company, but I'm of Jesus Christ and he loves me. The Corinthians needed the pure milk of foundational teaching and sometimes so do we. So as, as Kate comes now and plays our last song I want to encourage you to ask God to give you his eyes for the world and for yourself. That he'll help you see not how the world sees, not according to the flesh, but with God's eyes.